The Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center is a pillar in the Great Falls community. We're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Interpretive Center with a two-part series. Coming up on this episode of We're No Damn Experts, we're looking at the origin story with one of the original members who made the Interpretive Center dream a reality. Best damn podcast, the best damn town. You want to get up, get ready to get down. Welcome to the greatest damn town in Montana, Great Falls. I'm Rebecca Ingham. I'm Shannon Newth. And And we're we're No Damn Damn Experts. And I am so excited about this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, The guest we have with us in the studio is a first-time guest. However, the topic... Somehow, first time. I know. It's really a sad moment for us in, in <laughs> took our took us 120 some odd episodes. But uh, the topic we're going to be covering today is not one that hasn't been covered before, mm-hmm. but you're going to get the origin story. Mm-hmm. You are going to get probably more than you ever known because our guest is not only involved heavily with the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, which we've talked about often, but National Heritage Area creation Mm -hmm. for our area, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, She is steeped in knowledge within our community like nobody else Mm -hmm. I know. So fans of We're No Damn Experts, (laughs) you have a special treat because in the studio we have Jane Weber. Good morning. It's great to be here. Welcome, Jane. So what I didn't say is you also used to be a county commissioner. Mm -hmm. You were the leader of the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center. I think even before it got started, you're involved in many other efforts to um, restore historic sites, uh, develop our community, make it greater. Where do you find the time? Well, you know, I, you know, I'm one of those people that just can't sit. Mm-hmm. I have to keep moving. And, you know, my whole involvement with the Lewis and Clark Interpreter Center was because of Dale Gorman, who was a forest supervisor at the time. And I really think he handpicked me because <laughs> of my work on Nature's Den, if you can believe that. Oh. If you remember the old Nature's Den exhibit that we did over at the State Fair every year, we converted the entire building yes. to an interior yeah. forest. And, you know, I started writing some exhibit script for signage in there. And I think Dale thought, hmm, scratched his head and went, mm, she's the closest thing I think we've got. <laughs> so. She'll do. Well, yeah. Nature's Den still exists today. I think that's the whole name of the building. Yeah. It does. It does. Um, it's not the same building. There oh, was whoa. actually an historic building on the site that was shaped like oh. a T. And that was the original building that we were in. And it burned down. Oh, huh. probably 20 years ago now. So, oh, wow. Yeah, probably burned I did down. Not know that. Yeah, probably burned down at least uh, 10 years after we'd started Nature's Den up again. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. The well, Nature's Den like is I cool, though. It is great. We're going to learn, learn stuff. Learn all today. kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but Nature's Den now is still one of my m- most favorite exhibits during the Montana State Fair. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If it's a hot day, 
Oh, you want to go in there, especially because yeah, it's the coolest yeah. building in the in the facilities yeah. lot. And you know the trees just smell so good that they mm-hmm. bring in. Yeah. And you know I we always had Boy Scouts bring them in. I'm assuming they still have Boy Scouts that do that for a project. Okay. And then they have the live fish, which yeah, is really yeah. fun to have, and often live animals. Yeah, um, I feel like I've seen snakes in there too. Oh, like absolutely. Contained handled snakes in there <laughs> that's not, right. just, not just rubbing free. rampant in there <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah well the one time we actually had smoke jumpers that came and hung themselves up in the cottonwood <gasps> trees with their parachutes really and then showed the children how they got out of a tree how they climbed down that's from a tree because cool. that's a fairly frequent thing that happens with firefighters that are yeah. smoke jumpers yeah i would assume yeah. see i'm I, like as an adult i mean all these things that are like for kids i'm like oh that's so cool oh, <laughs> like, yeah. i want to see that I'm well you know i hate to admit this but you know years and years ago it was smoky bears i think 50th birthday and we had the community make cupcakes. Oh. And then I froze them. Mm-hmm. And then we had a big party for Smokey Bear over Ooh. at Nature's Den and handed out cupcakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Heaven forbid, free cupcakes that weren't oh baked in an industrial <laughs> right? yeah. That probably Don't could tell. never <laughs> happen again. But, you know, it happened then. And, and the kids just loved it. it yeah. They just yeah. loved it. Well, there's so much fun that happens. Uh, we've lured you here today um, to talk about the creation of the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, mm-hmm. which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Yes. On which is Cinco de Mayo, which yes. is, yeah, your episode is part of a two-part series oh, celebrating that. Yes. Yeah. Well, where's the margaritas? I know, well, they'll oh. be at the Interpretive <laughs> yeah. Center. We should have had them for this episode, though. That's true. Um, so you get handpicked um, from the Forest Service supervisor. He shows up. He's like, hey, Jane. I want you, <laughs> want you to create an entire interpretive center that will become North America's most extension, extensive collection of the entire Corps of Discovery <laughs> expedition Oof. on the banks of the Missouri River. And you're like, sounds like a great plan. <laughs> great, no problem. <laughs> well, you know, the, the beauty of it was this community in advance had been thinking about this. And mm-hmm. so they had actually had Congress pass legislation in 1988. And so Dale Gorman was a very smart man and, and a, a total guidance, guidance for me mm-hmm. as an employee of his. And he said, the first thing you need to do, Jane, and he didn't handhold me, but he said, the first thing you've got to do is you got to find out who the movers and shakers are in the community, and I'll give you a few names. And so some of the names, and these are people, sadly, who are no longer with us, but folks like a gentleman named um, Bob Bivens and Bob Dirk, who are retirees from Malmstrom Air Force Base. And Mike Labriola, who's still with us here in the community, was involved in the early days. And a woman named Marcia Stagmiller, who had her hands in many things around Great Falls community. And so I think the very first thing I remember doing was calling up Marcia Stagmiller cold and saying, hey, I just got uh, picked for this. Uh, Could we have lunch? (laughs) And she was so gracious about sitting down with me and giving me like a total brain dump it was like (laughs) drinking from a fire hose oh wow and she just explained everything that they had for ideas and how they had gone through the legislation which was not an easy task to do what's the gap here i mean from 88 to well it was probably six months after the legislation passed that i was officially on board okay so it wasn't real long after the legislation because dale gorman knew that we were the agency, the Forest Service, I say we because I worked for the Forest Service, we were the agency that was identified in the legislation mm. to actually take this project forward. So clearly that would have had to have been likely beforehand or because this is, I've often said, and maybe I'm wrong, which is not new to anyone who's listened to this <laughs> podcast, 
Um, it's not a normal place to house something like this inside the Forest Service. And it probably wouldn't happen today. <laughs> so it was like they had to have been involved at some point and said, no, we'll take this on. This seems like a good thing for us. And that had to have been decided, I think, before legislation went in. Is that correct? You're absolutely right. And and I really um, give the credit to Dale Gorman, who sold the story and sold the idea to the regional forester in Missoula, okay. who then carried that message back to the chief in Washington. Nice. So I will tell you that the, the Park Service did not want this center. Hmm. And it wasn't because they didn't believe in the history and the importance of central Montana. They simply did not want to take on the financial responsibility of creating an entirely Mm. new unit. I mean, think about it. There's a unit in Glacier and there's a unit in Yellowstone. They had nothing in between. They would have had to create a whole new structure. Mm. And so the Forest Service had a structure here. We had the National Forest for the Lewis and Clark National Forest right here. And so Dale Gorman just saw this as an opportunity and jumped on it. And it was such a white hat opportunity. Mm. Because at that time, you have to remember in the 80s, there was a lot of oil and gas discussion going on. A a lot of people would come out and protest in front of the headquarters of the Lewis and Clark National Forest because of leasing that was done. You know, and, and often the Forest Service didn't even create the lease or release the lease or allow the lease another agency did but then we were um, tasked with doing the environmental analysis so Dale Gorman had gone through a lot of not very nice things and probably (laughs) not things now that he's and I I know he's gone but after his retirement that I came to find out that maybe he wasn't particularly that supportive of but that was his job Mm, so that's what you do so this was white hat and this was a way to link into recreation, which a lot of people forget. Recreation is a major part of Lu- of the National Forest's mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the office you were working at uh, is not where it is today, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful location. Um, and certainly isn't where the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center is. So... Um, I have to imagine in that time as well, you still have the Anaconda Company doing some operations in conjunction with that. Yes, there were buildings being taken down from the old okay. site. Mm-hmm. The The stack was already long gone because I think that came down in the early was, 80s. Okay. But um, yeah, there was removal of some facilities still going on okay. or rehabilitation. You know, we have beautiful hillsides now where the old smelter site was that are green in the spring yeah. and look lovely. That was just underway at that time to get re uh, restored, mm. the, the landscape restored. But, you know, one of the things that we did very early on was we went to um, one of our hotels here in town uh, on 10th Avenue, just not very far from here, <laughs> and we <laughs> rented their big space, and we just said, we're going to have a big open public meeting. And, you know, people said everything from I want an IMAX theater in this <laughs> facility yeah. to I want live animals there all the time. You know, that kind of thing. So like it a, was like bears. Right. Or? You know, like everything was all over the board. Gotcha. Nobody knew yeah. what an interpretive center was. And that's oh. what the le- legal language in the legislation said. Hmm. It said interpretive center. So we had to define what this community envisioned for an interpretive center. And so about about 100 people came to that meeting. Hmm. Oh, I, that's really neat, though, that there was all this community input as yeah. to what should it look like. Mm-hmm. So it becomes kind of the community's own 
asset. Yeah, you know, it, it sort of fell into my role with the Forest Service because I was the public information officer at the time. Oh. So it was my job to be in the community on all kinds of issues with the Forest Service. Mm -hmm. So we actually hired a professional that came in and helped facilitate the meeting. But basically, the community worked in small groups. They had little index cards. Mm -hmm. We had sticky notes. We did the whole mm -hmm. spear yeah. on the wall. And, you know, the the I think the funnest thing and the most dangerous thing that can <laughs> ever happen is to write your mission statement. Mm. And so we actually allowed the community to write the mission statement. Hmm. While we continued to work as a group of 100, there were several people that went to the side and built the mission statement, which still stands today. Oh, wow. I mean, it is That's the same amazing. statement today. And, you know, Bob Bivens, who I'd mentioned earlier as a retiree from Malmstrom, was part of that group. Marcia Stagmiller was part of that group. I'm probably going to leave somebody out, but the other one that I remember is um, folks in this community may remember Bert Lindler, who used to be a reporter for the Great Falls Tribune mm -hmm. years and years ago. Bert had moved to Missoula um, and became involved with actually writing articles about fire management for the Forest <laughs> Service. But his wife, Christy Dubois, um, was a wildlife biologist for the State Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And Christy jumped in and participated in this small group discussion about creating the mission. Christy, I think, was the only female that dressed as a Lewis and Clark expedition member huh. in like 1985. This was before I was even involved. Um, when they did a reenactment of the portage oh, for wow. a national meeting of the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation. Mm. Huh. And so she sat in, and her name is underneath the description of that mission statement. Mm. She still lives over in the Missoula area today and is a fabulous small mammals wildlife biologist. So, oh, wow. huh. so we did have community involvement right from the get-go, and I think that that is what brought the support into the heart of people immediately. Because it's... Uh, I, obviously, folks, you don't know because there's no video. I'm super, super young. and <laughs> <laughs> She's way younger than me. <laughs> um, so wasn't here for a lot of that. But even in my history of, you know, and I've been around for nearly 20 years now in this community, it's just always been an institution. And there's always mm -hmm. been this community support for the Interpretive Center. So yeah. it's really cool to hear how... It, it's a natural fit. Like there's always been community support for right. this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, one of the things we did after that was we sort of framed what do we want to have? And, you know, IMAX theater, great idea. But, oh, super awesome. But the <laughs> IMAX theater is the be all end all. That yes. would have been the only thing we would have been able mm -hmm. to have in the facility. So as a community, we sort of, we discounted that mm -hmm. as a group so that Jane Weber and Dale <laughs> Gorman didn't have to say, <laughs> say eh, it's no. a little over the top. Yeah. So the community recognized that as a group. Yeah. But then what we did was we pulled together some experts in the history and they became our what we called the gang of four. Oh. <laughs> and, and you probably don't know this and I'm going to try to remember everybody. But James Rhonda, who is an author, had written a, a book about Lewis and Clark among the Indians. So he had done the most um, important and recent research on every Indian tribe that Lewis and Clark had interacted hmm. with. Oh, wow. And then Beth Merrick was the exhibit designer for the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman. And one of the other things that Dale Gorman and I said is we don't want some high-tech exhibits 
that are going to cost us a fortune to maintain. And Beth Merrick knew the nuts and bolts of that. And then we brought in Herman Viola from... Um, oh, I like that name. Yeah. It is a good name. Herman <laughs> worked for the Smithsonian oh. out of the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm still in touch with Herman. And um, Herman had just done the Columbus Expedition um, oh, commemoration my. for the Smithsonian. Wow. Well, and he was nailed. He was nailed because he really took it from a white man's perspective. Oh. And that exhibition did not go over hmm. the way Herman envisioned it. Hmm. Oh. And so he, he said, listen, I can counsel you on what not to do. <laughs> and so, well, yeah, so Herman was number three. And then the fourth one who was the most important one to me was George Horse Capture. Oh, yeah, and, local guy. Right, local, taught at the at then University of Great Falls, was it, I think, when it was called, in the early days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It might have been Great Falls College, even yeah. when he was there. And um, and then George worked for the National Museum of the American Indian oh. in Washington, D.C., hmm. later. But Herman knew George, and so they were very good professional hmm. friends, and that helped. But how did I get to some of these people? You're yeah. probably wondering. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just tell <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, they're just sitting in your back pocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Beth, Beth was easy to call because I had gone to the Museum of the Rockies. I looked over their exhibits um, and I'd visited with Beth. And Beth was just, and she, she still is, she still lives in Bozeman. And she was great because she said, oh, yeah, I'll join on with you. But getting to some of the others was a little bit more difficult. And so... I sought the advice of a gentleman in our community whose name you're going to know is James Parker Shield. Mm, of oh, course. Yeah. yeah. So James Parker Shield and I became really good friends. I mean, and James would tell me what to do and what not to do, <laughs> proper protocol. Yeah, I mean, he is awesome. And I'm going to just share, listeners, we have a three-part series with James Parker Shield early on in our podcast. Had him come in and just talk about whatever he wanted to did a little bit of talking on the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, which information I still use today. Mm-hmm. Um, huge asset. So shout out to James. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James was wonderful. He traveled with me to Cody, Wyoming, because that's where George Horse Capture was working. He mm. was the curator of all oh, Plains wow. Indian artifacts at Cody, Wyoming. Wow. And they were repatriating objects to the Cody, Wyoming Museum at the time George was there. Um, and he introduced me to George and... George joined us. I mean, I was just totally surprised. Uh, I'm always always had been in awe of George Horse Capture, and he will always be a a man that I respect mm. forever, forever and ever. So, Jane, you're walking up to these folks, <laughs> much like the president walked up to Lewis and Clark and said, "Hey, we're on a mission." <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, they're not getting paid, are they? They weren't being paid, but we did pay for travel. Okay. And they did come to Great Falls. Okay. And we sat down with people from that 100-member um, event that we had at the hotel, and we kind of winnowed it down to probably a dozen people in the community who really said they would be committed. Because you can't have somebody that floats in and floats out. Right. Yeah. you got to have somebody that's going to stick with you through the whole thing. And so Bob Dirk was in that group. Um, again, Bob Bivens. We lost, sadly, we lost Bob Bivens. He never saw the Interpretive Center. Oh. He passed away before that was open. Oh, but that's too bad. Bob Dirk had a great history. Mike Labriola was very involved. Again, Marcia Stagmiller was involved. Um, and then, and Dale Gorman stayed involved right from the very beginning. And then we started to get 
some folks who had some um, experience with wildlife and, and those kinds of things, too. But Herman and George and, um, and James Rhonda and Beth, we, they came together out at the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks facility at Giant Springs. Mm. We used their meeting room yeah. many times yeah. and um, sat down to try to hammer out the story. And the whole concept of Lewis and Clark and their travels through Indian country, which is the main theme at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center was generated from that group. Mm. Yeah, James had shared with us, there is a, uh, when you do the Interpretive Center, there is a river that runs through the Interpretive Center. And on one side of the river is the story of Lewis and Clark from their perspective. And then a story uh-huh. from the Native Americans perspective on the other side of the mm. river, which I find the most unique aspect mm-hmm. of that because it does tell both stories which mm-hmm. are different stories absolutely mm-hmm. um and one thing that i'm always careful to not say that lewis and clark discovered this area <laughs> right yeah they a- didn't discover anything <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. they really didn't discover anything no they, what mm-hmm. they did was record yeah mm-hmm. and that then became discoveries for people in the eastern part of the united states mm-hmm. who didn't know anything mm-hmm so when you're in these planning meetings, Jane, does it ever come up like we're going to cover the entire journey? Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, you're in, they, the core is interacting with tribes all along the way because mm-hmm. you, you simply can't not do that when you're exploring the Louisiana Purchase. But did you set out and say, we're going to have the biggest story from the time they leave till the time they get to the ocean and back again (laughs) telling the entire story yeah that that group of planning folks said that we have to do that Hmm. because they said number one it's never been done no other interpretive center tells the entire story see it from that specific location correct but not in the big scheme of the whole thing and two years you know that was a multi-year expedition things were already changing in the lower Missouri, I'll call it the lower Missouri, <laughs> up into the North Dakota country. Yeah. Things were already changing with the tribes because of the influence of your Americans coming up. Mm. And so telling the whole story was really great because then you get to show those changes just over the short period of time, really, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. That's a very short period of time um, in that era because, you know, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have travel <laughs> on planes. But it already was changing lifestyles for mm. some of those tribes. So we really wanted to make sure that we portrayed that entire thing. And the other thing that was really important that Herman Viola said, and George agreed with him, was uh, you can't tell the Indian side of the story from a white man's perspective. you yeah. got to get the Native Americans to tell their own story. So mm. we had to go and work with every Native tribe that we portrayed in that exhibition Mm. hall and have their words. So when you read those exhibits, you're going to see quotes from people that are not the exhibit designers and not people from Great Falls. Mm -hmm. They are from tribes. And so James went with me to many tribal council meetings. I mean, we Mm -hmm. went to the Nez Perce, we went to the Blackfeet, Mm -hmm. we went to the Assiniboine, you know, we went to all the different tribes. Um, we didn't travel to North Dakota, but we were able to deal with um, Gerard Baker, who was a National Park Service employee and had connections to the Tribal Council for the Arikara oh, nice. and the Mandan. And so um, that's how we did it. And mm. 
it was an interesting exercise, mm-hmm. getting feedback back and staying on track with exhibit evolution mm-hmm. and trying to get text back in a timely manner and mm-hmm. and comparing notes and saying, does this, does this work? We have to shorten what you sent us to fit on the sign. You know, it just was a lot of interaction back and forth, but it was probably the most exhilarating thing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, and to be that broad-based mm-hmm. i mean because you're ta- we're talking about a lot of miles they mm-hmm. travel right mm-hmm. and a lot of different tribes they interacted with and for you know i just i wonder how significant the meeting was sometimes for the tribes to see lewis and clark because they weren't like the only people in the area there were fur trappers and that kind of stuff to have that kind of an interaction hold in your memory mm-hmm. to go, oh, yeah, I'm, I remember those dudes yeah. <laughs> floating by. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it was pretty sensitive dealing with the Blackfeet because there was a, a death mm. with the Blackfeet on the return trip. And so telling that side of the story mm. is pretty important in the return portion of the exhibit hall downstairs. We want it to be very sensitive to the Blackfeet's story evolution because stories are passed down verbally Mm -hmm. as you know right from tribal generation to tribal generation Mm -hmm. and we wanted their story to be portrayed and the last thing I remember that we really talked about too was and if you look at the Lewis and Clark exhibits downstairs we didn't want people to walk away from that exhibit and saying oh yeah those Indian people you know they had an interesting life we didn't want them to walk away with that. We wanted mm-hmm. them to walk away with these first peoples live in our communities today, mm-hmm. are in our state houses, are in our congresses, you know, on a national yep. level, are business owners, mm-hmm. are teachers, are doctors, are counselors, are, you know, construction workers. These are people that have professions and thrive today. Mm-hmm. And they might need a little assistance to try to help retain their native tongue because that's an important part of their culture that many of them are trying not to lose. But um, so pay attention to those last exhibits in the Interpretive Center because mm-hmm. we actually portrayed real people mm-hmm. and their professions and yeah. what they were doing, trying to get that message across. And that was not an easy message to get across. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure. I still worry that it's a little lost today. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things we talked about when we were designing um, our space here at 15 Overlook Drive is the significant moments for Great Falls. We wanted to have those displayed in a way here that people can kind of walk through our space and go, oh, I get kind of what Great Falls is about. And one of the ones we wanted to tell was this story about the first people. There's not enough space here. Right. And so right. instead of just trying to do a, a single static display, we opted to, to not do any display on that, but then incorporated all the stories we have mm-hmm. into podcast episodes and our Basecamp magazine so that people have more of that story than what a mm-hmm. static display is. But we have one wall still reserved <laughs> for the future of whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. is a... It's such a huge story. As you said, it's just difficult to portray over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that 
was probably the most thrilling thing that I did. Is we, had a, we had an interpreter whose name was Billy Maxwell, and Billy was very connected to traditional um, activities like tanning hides with traditional brains and just making things and demonstrating the ways that Native Americans actually taught Euro-Americans how to do things, you know, mm-hmm. and they passed through and if they had generated a relationship. But we had um, a commemoration early in the morning when we did our grand opening with all the tribes invited, and it was a private ceremony. Hmm. And so Billy and I slept on the floor in the interpretive <laughs> center in sleeping bags because this had to be a sunrise event. And so we knew that we had to provide coffee for <laughs> the tribal folks immediately. And, and there had to be some foods available for the actual, and I'm going to call it a blessing because it was basically a tribal blessing of the center for us to be open and that we would thrive and and do the right things there with programming and with visitors and, and all of it. So Billy and I, <laughs> and you got to know that there are, um, there are motion detectors in the interpretive center. <laughs> and so Billy and I had to figure out where could we sleep on the floor, and if one of us rolled over that we didn't set off the motion detector. <laughs> and so it was a pretty funny and uncomfortable evening for both of us. <laughs> and I believe we got up at like 4.30 in the morning or oh 4 my. in the morning because it was summertime. Yeah. And so sunrise is early. I think, I think we were up at 4. And so we're making pots of coffee and all this. And then we had... All the tribal representatives were there on time at, you know, before sunrise. Mm -hmm. And we went down to the patio down below the elevator. There's a large area there. And James Parker Shield said, now you can invite the county commissioners, but they cannot invite anybody else. And you can invite the mayor. And I said, fine, we'll do that. And he said, but we got a problem. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, one of your county commissioners is a woman. And it was Peggy Beltram. Mm. Oh. And, and I'm a woman, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and James said, um, you can't participate. They, you got to tell Peggy she can't participate. And I said, okay, well, Peg's up with that. I mean, I'll talk to her about it. And, you know, I'm just here as background noise. I'm, I'm pouring the coffee. And so um, Peggy came. And it was really interesting because they did a smudge before they started the ceremony. And we were in a large circle. And I mean, there were Crow people here. There were Blackfeet people here. There were Nez Perce people here. Um, There was a Cinnamon people here. It it was a large group of elders who came. And we smudged. And, you know, you go around the circle, one with an um, oyster shell is what they were burning the sage in. And James was part of helping make sure that was moving along. And um, Peggy just sat on the side. And they did allow Peggy to smudge. And they didn't allow when we got to the smoking of the pipe because they did pass a pipe at the very end, too. Mm-hmm. They passed food around. Um, it was probably an hour and a half ceremony. Oh, wow. It wow. Was, and it was lovely because the sun came up during the ceremony mm-hmm. and um, there was a lot of native tongue spoken. And it, it was just incredible, just the catharsis and the symbiotic relationship between different tribes because, you know, not all these tribes in the right. days of Lewis and Clark were pals. Mm-hmm. Right. They were competitors. And so um, this was this was incredible. This was just incredible. It is so neat that that happened at the Interpretive Center because the other thing that we've learned is the First People's Buffalo Jump just to the south of Great Falls 
also a natural place for meetings. There was not the warring that would happen at other Buffalo Jump. And so interestingly enough, I mean, this is former Blackfeet area. Um, for that to just continually happen in Great Falls. I'm yeah. just, mm-hmm. It's just really a neat, not just once or twice, but it continually happens in Great Falls where people can come together with many differences and um, past histories that are not complementary and still embrace what this area is. Yeah, and I always remember James, you know, James explained many things to me, as did George Horse Capture too. Um, and I think I recall, I think George was at that uh, grand opening ceremony too, the blessing ceremony. And James said, this ceremony will set you on a good path. Mm. And that's what it was for. And so when we had the 10-year anniversary, we repeated the same thing. Wow. And we, and again, people don't know that because it was private. Mm-hmm. It was private. And we allowed the participants into the parking lot and then we locked the gate because we didn't want a general public stumbling onto this. And we actually had staff, as I recall, down below the path because people were walking along the river between Giant Springs. And um, we just said, sorry, it's a private affair upstairs and you can't walk up this portion of the trail for another hour and a half. People were very respectful of that because we, geez, could you imagine if there'd been gawkers? It it just wasn't the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, Well, and it's gotta be awkward, like, because... From my perspective, a marketing perspective, it would be cool to record oh, that, yeah. like get that Absolutely. on video. But it's also the inappropriate thing to do. It's mm-hmm. not something you watch. Mm-hmm. It's something you participate in mm-hmm. by invitation, done right. by or, a specific for a specific purpose, not for <laughs> marketing. Mm-hmm. That's right. It <laughs> would be cool terribly it dis- yeah, be be terribly disrespectful. So yeah, we were just so pleased that that happened. So did you want a little bit of a story on how we got the <laughs> how we got the film in the Interpretive Center? Yeah. Um, well, that and do you have some stories about, I mean, there's a, a huge building with mm-hmm. the cost associated with some of those. I don't think the Forest Service alone bore those. Um, no, no, that was um, that was a deal. And I and I really <laughs> I really think back alley deals. Yeah, well, no, I think that it was a deal that Congress didn't think we'd be able to make happen. Mm. So showed them. Yeah, we had a building that was designed, and we knew it was six million dollars with mm. the exhibits, and um, and so Congress said, "Well, we'll give you a half." Wow. Oh. And you got about eighteen to twenty-four months to come up with the other half. Oof. Otherwise, you know, it's off the table. We'll give you three. You come up with the other three. And I will tell you that this community launched. I don't know if you um, remember Jim Flaherty. His son Mike still runs the paper business here in town. I know Mike. I never met his dad. So Jim Flaherty was involved with an organization. And for the life of me, I'm not going to remember the name of it. But it was a kind of a shipping group. And they had dissolved. They were dissolving. And Mike Labriola called me up and he said, I think they have, I don't know, I don't quote my numbers, but it was at least $20,000 in their account. And they have to give it to a nonprofit. Oh. <clears throat> he said, you know, this would be a really good start for the fundraising. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, $3 million, 20000 or whatever, but, <laughs> yeah. but it was a start. And that was a lot of money. I mean, $3 million was so intimidating to me. I just mm, went, oh, my yeah. God, are we ever going to be able to do this? And as a federal employee, I was not allowed to ask for money. Right. I could tell 
the way the money was going to be spent and the need for money, but I could never ask for the money. So always there was a partner that went with me, and Mike Labriola went with me to this organization one evening. I gave the pitch on what we were planning to do. I talked about the design and all of that, and and then Mike just said, look, this is a good thing for our community. And Mike was involved with the Chamber of Commerce at that time. He was the vice yep. chair. Mm. And so Mike just said, um, I think you should give it to this group. And by God, they did. And wow. so that was like our very first big contribution. And mm. it started to just get the ball rolling. And people in this community, Joan Bennett was the chairman of mm. the board at the time. We actually created a board after we had created that kind of ad hoc planning group that helped with the gang of four, we formalized and created a 501c3. So Joan Bennett was involved with that. Is that what the foundation, is that the foundation? It's the foundation of the foundation, yes. Okay. Yes. It was called the Fund Inc. at the time. <laughs> okay. And Harry Mitchell, uh, former county commissioner and okay. owner of the Ayrshire Dairy, was on that. And Harry you know, the compass rose in the center of the floor of the lobby yeah. was a huge fundraising effort. And you could pay anywhere from 250 to $2,500 or something, maybe 5000 for each of the tiles, depending on how big they were. And so, folks, what uh, Jane's talking about is in the center, when you walk into the Interpretive Center, in the middle of the floor, on the mm-hmm. top floor, when you first walk in, there is a beautiful, beautifully designed compass Mm -hmm. and on there tiles of every donor Mm -hmm. that's right and and also on the outer rim if you haven't paid attention is actually sort of a a shorthand story of the lewis and clark expedition Mm. done by joe horse capture who was george's son and joe has was at the minneapolis museum of art at the time i believe Mm. and he and his wife lisa did that so take a look at that outer rim because that outer rim tells the entire story wow um, just in very shorthand version visually and then harry mitchell i can't tell you how what a godsend harry mitchell was harry mitchell tracked and remember those are the days where we didn't have computers we didn't have excel spreadsheets we didn't have that he tracked every donor what amount they wanted. And some people would say, I want to be on the northeast piece <laughs> of the compass. Oh, man. So Harry had to track if someone requested a specific location yeah. on the compass rose, where exactly they wanted to be. And some they people have to didn't. pay premium for that? Like to if, get a special like spot. Like, I want to be in this specific no, spot. That's going to cost you an extra hundred yeah, bucks. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> Harry yeah, did yeah. that. He should have. Yeah, he right. Yeah, I don't think that happened, but it should have. Okay. Um, but Harry tracked all of that. And to my knowledge, and then Malisani's here in town yep. cut all the tile from the design oh, and then wow. did the inlay for us. Wow. And I think, you know, they were really sweating it on that because that was... Oh. Everything had to fit together perfectly. Yeah. Those pieces were each cut to go around in a circle. So each of the side pieces were sort of flanged. Hmm. So they had to fit from the center of the circle to the outer oh width gosh. of the circle. Malasani did a fabulous tile. job with that. It's, it's yeah. tile. It is. It's all tile. Mm-hmm. It looks like marble. Mm-hmm. It yep. does. It That's will last forever. It will last <sighs> yeah. forever. Oh, man. Local artisan right there. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we were very fortunate. We tried to have as many local people involved right. with every aspect of this as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, the exhibit design, we couldn't because we don't have exhibit designers of that um, size and caliber here mm-hmm. in, in Montana. 
Um, so we went to Minneapolis for that St. Paul area, and Slip, Split Rock um, did the designs of the exhibits and, and did a fabulous job. And um, we went back. I think Mike Labriola went back with me at least once to look at them in progress. And um, we, you know, we would say, we don't really like that way mm. that looks. And mm. so it was kind of an interesting dialogue back and forth with the interpretive designers because the foundation or funding at that time paid for all of the design and wow. all of the construction of the exhibits and then donated that to the Forest Service. Oh. And they did that on purpose so the Forest Service could not, as the government, have total control over the story. They had control over the story. Wow. The community had what control insight. over the story. Mm -hmm. So to backtrack a little bit, you get the $20,000 and then boom, you have $3 million. <laughs> Right. <laughs> how, yeah, long right. Does, how long does that <laughs> yeah. take? How? It, it took about 18 months. I wow. mean, it was pretty okay. quick, I thought. Um, they went out and actually just started hitting foundations, corporations. Mm. It um, had to have almost been helpful to have like, hey, we've only got this long to get it done or yeah. it's not an option. You're mm -hmm. right. You're right. I mean, that was really... A stimulus for us but I truly think Congress never thought we could achieve it yeah, yeah. I really do think they never thought we well, could get it done three million in It'll, 18 months mm -hmm. it's a lofty goal it was mm -hmm. and we did receive the first grant from the state you're gonna have to help me with this Rebecca there <laughs> are grants that go out now from the state yeah tourism grants right and mm -hmm. we got the first one and we got the entire grant oh so wow. normally they split it now yep. yeah but we got two hundred thousand mm. dollars from the state um tourism group and we did receive if I'm recalling two hundred thousand dollars from the city of Great Falls because mm. they had just sold I think, well, maybe it was from the county because they had sold the nursing home here in town. Oh, So wow. it was Harry Mitchell. He was on the board of directors. It was the county. Hmm. So Wow. Those are big chunks, though. Yes, they <laughs> were big chunks. 400000 And the yeah. Murdoch Foundation gave us a significant mm -hmm. sum, too. And, mm -hmm. and they've been very generous to Great Falls for many years. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, it came together. My biggest regret, Rebecca and, and Shannon, is that when we hit the $3 million, we just went... We did We it. made it and didn't keep oh, pushing. And we didn't yeah. keep going. We should have raised an endowment. Yeah. We should have raised an endowment. Sure. And we didn't do that. And that was my bad. And the rest of us thinking that's all we needed to do. Sure. Because had we raised an endowment because we had the momentum, we would have had money to change yeah. out the audio equipment mm. at a sooner pace. Because that right. audio equipment now is over 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's failing them on occasion. And they... They are finally getting the money to be able to do it this year. But yeah. it's way overdue, way overdue. Yeah. But to not beat yourself up about it, that's a huge goal that you all were able to achieve yeah. to get the $3 million. Yeah. yeah, and the the intent focus it must mm -hmm. have taken. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Not to name anything specific, but I was a part of a project that tried to raise money just to get like a hundred million dollars today to mm -hmm. build a building and in that process mm. no mm -hmm. it didn't work no <laughs> didn't work well well it was a all. different era of philanthropy too. yes you have was. to remember in the late 80s early 90s 
people had the opportunity to give and had the money to give and were willing to give. Mm-hmm. We, we're in a different place now. The 80s were different, um, not just in that, but like 80s bars, completely different than bars today. <laughs> <laughs> and, I can't you, speak to that. Really. You, know, <laughs> you know people, you know. It uh, was a different scene. <laughs> it was a good decade to be born in. So you raised the money. How long did it take to construct everything? It took about two years, if I'm okay. recalling, mm-hmm. to construct and get the exhibits installed and then to get the film, mm-hmm. too, so... The land, did you guys have to buy the land? What's the deal with the land? So the land, that's a good question. Because it's not in a normal location. Like, it's, I shouldn't say normal. It's not in a, in the middle of town. The Interpretive Center is not just It's in a state park. No. It's in a state park. Yeah. And so, um, again, and James Parker Shield was out there on the side. I can see him (laughs) standing, walking around. Several of the people I've named, Marcia Stagmiller, Bob Bivens, Bob Dirk, Mike Labriola, they were all out walking the land with us with um, Dan Vincent, who was the head of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks right here in our regional area at the time. And people wanted it on the river. They wanted mm-hmm. a view of the water. And they just felt that was incredibly important, and it certainly is. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes the most sense. Yeah, it, does. it really does. But, you know, there wasn't very many places where you could just find land. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so... You know, you have to remember, that was the early days of Giant Springs Park building. They had just built that building out Mm, there. Okay. And that building was on a septic system. And they were already worried. Mm. Because if you're going to have visitors coming to an interpretive center, my goodness, how are you going to, we can't do this on a septic system. And what are we going to do? And you got to have extra land for a septic system. So we selected this site um, and went to Fish, Wildlife, and Parks officially and said we'd like to have this site this is the best site best location of undeveloped land on the opposite shore too which was nice and Mm. um, there was a transaction there was a financial transaction between (laughs) the forest service and state parks okay in order to have that land and then that land was actually um, deeded into the city it became part of the city limits Mm. and i'll tell you why It had to. Water we had to have water and sewer. Mm, yeah. And so the city, that's where the city came in. The county actually gave us $200,000 in cash, so it's coming back to me now. <laughs> um, and then the county, Harry Mitchell, challenged the city and said, you need to match what we're going to oh. do. And so the city matched it with $200,000 worth of hookup mm. for the city okay. utilities. Okay. So, nice. The city knew that they could contribute that, and anybody else that joined in along that um, sewer line or water line would eventually have to buy into it. So they would recoup some other money. Mm. I don't know whether that was ever tallied over time, but um, the sure, city saw that it. that was a worthwhile thing and that yeah. they could recoup funding. So right there, then you have $400,000. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a match of value. So we were really starting to pull the 300000 together pretty pretty. I'm not the 300,000, the 3 million pretty quickly. Yeah. Wow. And the building is striking because it had, well, it's also the people who work there have the best office views in the entire, I mean, we have pretty darn good ones here too, but. It is pretty dang They have pretty, pretty nice views. The the big, huge windows overlooking, uh, overlooking the river that, you know, you're talking about. When you walk into the Interpretive Mm -hmm. Center, you're depending on what where you're looking like i'm going to be looking down because there's a chance i'm going to (laughs) trip 
It's yeah. just because I'm not that talented. But when you immediately, you walk in, I'm looking at the ground, I see the compass, I'm like, oh my God, look at yeah. how beautiful that mm-hmm. is. And then you look up, you're like, oh, <gasps> floor yeah. to ceiling window mm-hmm. where it is the full length, mm-hmm. uh, two story floor to ceiling window. You're just staring out at the Missouri yeah. River. Mm-hmm. No matter what the weather is or what it's doing, oh. it just draws you to that view. Yeah. And then you see the ginormous boat. <laughs> Tell me a little bit that about that exhibition. That is probably one of my favorite pieces in the Interpretive Center. Yeah. I don't know if other people are unnaturally attached to it, but <laughs> what did that take to create yeah. well, or you know, find? That, or... that thing, <laughs> installing that uh, was a terror. We did it in the evening, as I recall, because they were still working on the building itself when we were starting to install exhibits. So those glass plate windows were in there. Ooh, and yeah. we installed it from the top of the lobby. Oh, my gosh. And we had to roll it down. <gasps> with the, the windows installed? With the windows installed. Because oh you couldn't gosh. install exhibits without them being yeah. enclosed right. in the building. Yeah. And, and nobody's just, at the bottom stop. No, but I don't care how many people you put at the bottom. <laughs> they aren't stopping, stopping it. Yeah, I wasn't going to lay my body down. But, <laughs> yeah. but um, we were terrorized. Mm-hmm. But the exhibit designers were... Very experienced. Mm -hmm. They knew what they were up against, and they had pulleys and chains and, you know, all kinds of things holding that thing as they lowered it little by little down onto there and then locked it in place so that it would not move I was just going to ask, how is it in there now? Oh, no, it's permanently (laughs) locked into that that, uh, false cliff Mm -hmm. area. And it was just terrifying because I thought, oh, my God, I can just see these windows just being blown (laughs) out in this canoe down (laughs) in the river. Yeah. Hey, you know it floats. Yeah, Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know. This one, I think, is made out of a a frame and styrofoam. So it's light. It it was fairly light. Well, that um, helps a little but bit. But isn't it, it looks so original. It does. It yeah. looks like it, it would looks weigh a ton. It looks very heavy. It, it I was thought it heavy. was original. Well, I tell everyone it's an original. And the artistic <laughs> work of the on the um, sculptures of the, the core members who are pulling it also make it look very <laughs> Well, and the fun thing about the core members <laughs> mm-hmm. is the exhibit design. I mean, you get to know these people pretty well. Right. Yeah. And so Chris Wilson was one of the guys that we worked with. And I can't remember the other guy, people's name. Jane Wilson was his wife. And she was one of the exhibit um, designers, too. But the heads of the men that mm-hmm. are on on that exhibition yeah. fabrication are images of s- some of the exhibit designers. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They that's did their so own little neat. tidbit. <laughs> yeah, they did their own faces. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, we, I don't know if I've ever told you this. You know we hosted the Berlin Airlift Veterans yes. Association here. And one of their stops was at the Interpretive Center. And when they were here doing their site visit, the lead president of their association was a 90, at the time, 93-year-old World War II veteran who walked, you know, step for step through this entire thing. And there was another gentleman who was a little bit more of a fast talker, getting all things taken care of with the Interpretive Center staff. And I just sat there on the bench looking at the dugout display in the Interpretive Center with this 93-year-old man. And he's looking at the men. And having military history, you know, being part of the Berlin airlift, being part of World War II, he looks at me and he goes, the clothes are tattered. And he goes, that guy right there, he was a, he was a troublemaker. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's creating this entire mm. story for, with me about these people that 
we don't know. Exactly. But he picks out the one guy. He's like that. You just see they've beat him up a number of times. He's got a big mouth. Nobody likes him. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. They just got along all the time. It was, you know, kumbaya and <laughs> s'mores every night. And he goes, yeah, I've been in the military. That's not what happened. Exactly. <laughs> you should have told him that some of the bruises on the guy were probably from the softball-sized hail that they had <laughs> yeah, no just had the day before. Oh, yeah. But the, the attention to detail. I mean, mm-hmm. the clothes are not intact. They are... Tattered. Shredded. Yeah, mm-hmm. Tattered. Mm-hmm. Like like it's been a, a tough trip um, yep. Yep. and they ran out of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, until they found bison again, you know, and had hides to work with. And, yeah. You know, they, they were without yeah. mm-hmm. repair opportunity for some time. Yeah. You're just piecing together whatever shreds are left. Exactly. Trying to uh-huh. keep your niblets covered. <laughs> exactly. It's a, good, it's a good visual representation <laughs> with that, the clothing, the expressions, the boat itself, and then the cliff would be like, Oh, yeah, that wasn't easy. <laughs> so, hey, I'm dying to tell you about the film. Okay, right, because we keep getting off track. <laughs> I know, you keep taking me away from this piece of the story. So, you know, our film was done by Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, they were working on their four-hour series. I think that's what their original one is, four hours long. And so everybody said, well, you know, we need to have a short no more than 22 <laughs> minutes, 20, yeah. 22 minutes, 18 would be better, um, film. But it has to be our theme of Lewis and Clark and their travels through Indian country. Mm. And so I don't know if you remember Rhonda Bannock. Uh, yes. Rhonda Bannock, she is a kick. So Rhonda Bannock owned Bannock um, Designs, Communications, communications yep. and, and Rhonda was, if you don't know Rhonda, she's got a lot of energy. So Rhonda says to me, I think we need to call Ken Burns. And I said, you mean the Ken Burns? She says, yeah, we're just going to call him. And I said, really? (laughs) All right, where would you like to do that? She says, come down to my office. We'll just call him on the phone here from my office. And I said, "Uh, can can you get a number? And she says, well, I'll figure something out. So so we go down to to her. I go down to her office. And um, in the end, what she did was she called Dayton Duncan. And Dayton Duncan does much of the writing and a lot of research for Ken Burns. And had, he was the primary researcher on his Lewis and Clark film. So Rhonda gets on the phone and she says, Hi, I'm, my name is Rhonda Bannock. And you're Dayton Duncan. And I know that you work quite closely with Ken Burns. And Dayton goes, Yeah, yeah, where are you from? And she goes, I'm from Great Falls, Montana. He goes, oh, We love Great Falls, Montana. Oh. We just love that place. That is the primary place for the Lewis and Clark story. Can we come out? And can oh we can God. be with you? And, and Rhonda goes, yeah, you can come out anytime you want. <laughs> she says, we'll show you a good time. We got people here who can take you on the trail, and we'll just show you anything you want. Now, remember, he was in the throes of still getting raw footage at the mm. time. He hadn't put the piece together, his piece together. But we knew that his piece was not the storyline we wanted right. mm. of Lewis and Clark through Indian Country. And so, anyway, um, we befriended Dayton Duncan because... Rhonda panic had the courage <laughs> to just call him up. Yeah, I would just say something else, but yeah. I can't on the air. But she had the to just call him up. And so um, so then Rhonda was trying to explain to Dayton what we wanted. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. So he sends the first script cut because we said, listen, we got to have control of the script. We got to mm-hmm. be able to review it. 
And so, how do you tell Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan <laughs> that you really don't like their first cut? Ooh, yeah. Because they just didn't quite get it. Right. And so, it was very awkward. But in the end, you know, Dayton really listened. And mm-hmm. we said, we need to get George Horse Capture talking to you maybe a little bit. Would you like to meet James Ronda? Um, we can put you in touch with those people. I can't recall whether he actually on his own did it. But... Um, we got the script we wanted mm. from them over time, but I will never forget that one. Rhonda said, "Come on down to my office. We'll give Ken Burns a call." Give him a call. Okay, and yeah. then later to be like, "Well, we don't really actually like, like this first draft here." Yeah, <laughs> thanks for participating. Yeah. You're gonna have to go back to the drawing board. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. But look what it has created. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we premiered Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan's film mm. in the Civic Center. And cool. we that place was packed. Yeah. And yeah. it was amazing. It was just amazing to have both of them on the stage here yeah, in Great Falls. No kidding. Talking about their film, talking about the people they'd met in Great Falls, how they appreciated because our Lewis and Clark honor guard here in Great Falls was and still is, in my opinion, the be all end all experts on all things original mm. and traditional. Super with Lewis committed. And Clark. Mm-hmm. I mean, their res- research is impeccable mm-hmm. and when you say they're dressed in tatters, uh-huh. these guys know how to dress. They yeah. know what the uniforms look like, what they would have looked like when they were here after a year out. Um, they just, what the equipment should look like, what the weaponry should look like. Some people in other places even use the wrong firearms, mm. you know, but not our guys. Yeah, they, they, it's authentic. It's all authentic. Mm. It is a lost art mm-hmm. or an art that is lost on people that mm-hmm. if they're not paying close enough attention and the commitment that the honor guard really has to just stepping up to tell any portion of the story being part of any part of the story um, helping in that area is really amazing mm-hmm. um, and I will say a little sad because a lot of them are heritage members of our society mm-hmm. and there doesn't seem to be that generation coming up behind them to take over mm. the reins. Yeah. You're right. There are some young people I do know that they've gotten involved, but you know, anybody that's listening to this podcast, if you're interested in doing something honorable because these honor guard members, they go in our schools. Yeah. And they they talk to the children about valor and courage mm. and leadership and learning how to make decisions. Um it's all good stuff. And and then they they use their entree of walking into school, you know, in leathers. Yeah. And I mean, they're pretty noticeable yeah. when they yeah. walk down the halls in leathers. <laughs> they don't look like they've got no. ripped skinny jeans on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Different kind of ripped pants. Yeah. yeah. And this this film is, uh, so talk about then, we're jumping ahead a little bit to modern day here, but this film is still an integral part of the experience when you go to the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center. That's correct. There is now a second film that they alternate with. But, okay. Um, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan's film is the premiere film that mm-hmm. we usually show to school groups when well did when I was there right. um, showed to school groups and it's not IMAX but there is a nice theater that's oh it's in, a beautiful there. theater yeah. it's a lovely mm-hmm. theater um, and it's I know IMAX like yeah it is IMAX like great yeah. and, and I mean I know that they've used that theater for rentals in the evenings mm-hmm. for other yeah. kinds of productions that are shown and other there. presentations exactly mm-hmm. other film premieres mm-hmm. correct um, the wildlife film with Harry Milligan and um, 
Jake Gyllenhaal was premiered mm. there as a story about Great Falls. Mm. Side note. Yeah. It was not filmed here. It was filmed in Enid, Oklahoma, no. but besides the point. So can I tell you, an, I have another story to tell. Tell, please. That. So, you know, I, I was the director there for a decade, which was an honor to mm. be able to do that. I, I knew nothing about running an interpretive center. A decade after you got it built. Right. Mm. Yeah. For 10 years. So you did all of that and you're like, <clears throat> yeah, now for I'll 10, run it. 10 yeah. years afterwards, I oh. was, yep. was mm-hmm. able to then operate it. And a woman by the name of Sue, Sue Bouchelle was a National Park Service employee. And she worked up at Glacier part-time. She had a young son and a single parent. And it was tough because she'd be apart from him. And it was during critical growing period for him. Mm. So... She talked to me, and she had come down and helped me out with a volunteer training program and and a fee collection system and all kinds of stuff that I knew nothing about, but she <laughs> knew everything about. And so I got to give her credit. She should have been the director. I was really her. I was her accomplice. She just kind of led the way for me. So Sue um, decided to come and stay with us for a full year just to get us up on board. Oh wow! And it was tremendous because she started the interpretive program for us where we we required employees to learn how to be interpreters and speak in front of the public and yep. have a theme and have an engaging story and be historically accurate and use primary sources with your research mm-hmm. all of the above which is anybody that's working on a master's program in history knows that those are important things but you also have to tell an engaging story for a six-year-old as well as a (laughs) 60-year-old. So Mm -hmm. um, Sue helped us with that. And that program was fantastic. And we did educational programs out at the Interpretive Center too. But one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to do a little film, a little side film footage with a live grizzly bear. <laughs> and no so, big great idea. <laughs> I mean, I can't see anything going wrong. Are here. we calling Ken Burns for this too? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, every time we had an anniversary, to me, it was important to bring a live animal there. <laughs> so we had live birds there. We had live bison. Well, that's another story about the live bison. <laughs> okay. talk to you about. But you know, we had people from the Nez Perce come and they brought up their horses and had them all decked out in Nez Perce regalia. So all of that was always happening at an anniversary, but. So we tried to, we we didn't try, we actually successfully filmed this, but we engaged the services of a gentleman who had a live grizzly bear, who was pretty well trained with a shock fence. And so we were down on the Missouri River, (laughs) and Norm Anderson, Norman Anderson, who's a retired history teacher here in our community, is president of the Honor Guard, said, um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Lewis and, you know, it's the scene where the grizzly bear yeah. chases Lewis mm-hmm. into the river. And he shoots out. No, he, he hadn't recharged his weapon. Oh. So he had his espontoon, his spear kind of thing, yeah. that he points at the bear. And so um, there was also another scene that we wanted to create, which was having... Uh, having the bear chase one of the men from the expedition, don't ask me which one now, it's too far (laughs) away, but up in a tree, which he climbed up Mm. in a tree to get away from the grizzly bear. So we had uh, raw chicken, (laughs) raw chicken legs, because that's how you attract the Uh bear. And so So Steve... Side note, don't hike with raw chicken. So so Steve Schaller was an employee at the Interpretive Center, ran a tremendous education program for us. And so he was a member of the Honor Guard. And he said, well, I'll be the one that gets chased up in the tree. And so um, the handler kept saying to Steve, now, you got to pet the bear first. You got to... 
he's got to smell you before we start any of this filming. And he said the same thing to Norm. And, and he kept saying, don't make any quick moves. Uh-huh. Just, just kind of stand there and let the bear get used to you. And then, so that was terrorizing. You have to get that feeling yeah. from Norm. Norm could tell you that. And then Steve climbed up in a tree. And so we had to simulate the bear mm. pawing at him up in the tree mm-hmm. and trying to get him to, you know, sh- right. showing that the bear caused him to be in the tree. Well, in reality, when you're filming, Steve's in the tree and you're trying to just simulate the bear doing that. So Steve had raw chicken in his hands, and the bear was going after this raw chicken. It was like, oh, my God, just drop the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> drop the chicken. I, don't lose your hand. Oh don't lose gosh. your hand. Yeah. And oh. so that was hilarious, and S- Steve was sweating bullets. I mean, he was I, literally yeah. sweating. <laughs> so, but the story of the bear in the water with Norm, because Norm would run into the water, and what they had done was put an electrified fence under the water, Okay. A ways out. So if the bear touched the fence, he wouldn't go any further. Yeah, that okay. was the theory. And so. Because mm, water and electricity seem to go real well. really well. Right, yeah. right. So it was battery operated <laughs> somehow. Anyway, yeah. so um, Norm does several takes with the bear charging after him. And they're, they're filming the bear because he, he had trained the bear to run after Norm. And then Norm had to turn around in the water. He's almost waist deep. And then pull the espontoon on the bear and then try to get the bear to stop. And the handler had to have the bear stop. Well, the bear did a good job for filming, but on the last take, you don't got to remember, this is a captured bear that's now in the summer in the cool Missouri River. Mm -hmm. And the water was, it was early enough that the water was flowing pretty good. And the bear floated over (laughs) the electrified fence. No. And then we tried to get out to the water with him, but it was too deep for us. And then he went over to the rocky island that's visible uh-huh. right outside. And then it was time for Jane to call fish wildlife. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so oh gosh. the bear got onto the island, and I thought, oh, my God, if that bear gets on the other side of the island and on the north shore, he he's is, gone. He's gone. Yeah. So... Um, The good news is that the bear was not very athletic because the bear had been in captivity for a long time. So swimming swimming to the island tired him out. (laughs) But oh my goodness, the call that I had to make to Fish Wildlife (laughs) Parks and say, Uh, we have a live grizzly bear on the loose in the city limits in an (laughs) island in the middle of the Missouri River. Can you get a boat out there with us? (laughs) Oh my god! And so the handler got in the Fish Wildlife and Park Mm. boats. I got yelled at. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that's a a given. Yep. Yeah. And then he had treats, obviously, oh to my gosh. entice the bear. Into the boat. In, well, I th- as oh, I yeah, recall, I, I think <laughs> that they put a chain around his neck and then they kind of ferried him okay. to the land, okay. to the solid land. Oh, my God. Jane, goodness so, gracious. So that's, what, that's one of the stories. <laughs> Wait, what anniversary was this again? This was, was a filming. We were okay. trying to do so a Okay, so where floor. do we see the footage of this? Yeah, right. Well, Did actually, it ever make I, it to air? No, it's in the one film. It's okay, in the second okay. film, I think. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, it's been a long time. I've been to the Interpretive Center very recently, but I haven't sat and watched that film I've only seen in a the long one. time. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen both or not. I don't think I've seen the second. Yeah. You should sometime okay. have Norm Anderson just 
tell you his feelings oh of having that charging bear face him in the water. Oh, my gosh. The bigger question is, in the future, when you said, hey, Norm, I've got an idea, did he go, Jane, yeah. shut your no. mouth? Yeah. <laughs> no, Norm's a really good friend of mine. And, you know, it's one of those memorable things that's in his diary that, not everybody has in their yeah. diary. No. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I don't true. want it in mine. <laughs> you don't want it in yours? Well, well, I'll tell you the bison story, too, yeah. since we're at it. So um, one of the anniversary days, we wanted to feature um, all about bison. And mm-hmm. so we had two young bison who were locally owned um, brought out to the interpretive center. We put up a big fence, you know. Yeah. Like you do, like a rancher's fence, mm-hmm. and um, just like, like we you did do. with the grizzly. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah this, this one wasn't electrified. <laughs> was and, this after the grizzly? Oh yeah. Okay. This was a couple years later. Okay. And our anniversary was always in May. We always mm-hmm. did it in May, and so um, the bison did fine that day. We had people that came and talked about bison, talked about bison management, and native people came and talked about the use of the bison, the importance of the bison all the different products that were created from bison. It was a great day. So it's the end of the day. And my younger sister, who lives in the Seattle area, is with me. And everybody's gone except me and the maintenance man and the guy who's supposed to round up the bison to put in the trailer. Okay. <laughs> well, bison don't always do what you want them to do. No, because they are still animals. wild animals. That's mm-hmm. right. And they were not cooperating with the gentleman who was trying to get them in the trailer Uh-oh. and there were two of them remember mm-hmm. and and they weren't full adults but geez they're big animals mm-hmm. i mean these weren't even the teenager ones are big yeah uh-huh. i mean this was yeah he was yeah. well over a thousand pounds i'm sure <laughs> and um or both of them were and so then they got a little bit antsy and they started banging up against the fences and so my sister and i and the maintenance man or ray are on the outside of the fences and one of the fences goes down because oh. he pushed so hard the fence came down. Oh, no. So now we have free roaming bison, <laughs> just like it should be, theme, <laughs> yeah, on the prairie. <laughs> and you know, I was just dumb enough that the the gentleman that was sent to collect the bison was not the original owner. Mm. I think oh. he wasn't as experienced in loading the bison, and so he says to my sister Beth and I, "Well, just get behind them." And just put your oh arms out and yeah. just kind of go, hey, hey, heard them in. Hey, hey, heard them towards the trail. That did not work. That did not work. And people said, do you know that they could have turned and just mm-hmm. charged you? What are yeah. you, crazy? And so we had to, we finally got the fence back up. We got them in an area where we could at least encase them against in, inside a fence again. Mm-hmm. And the guy with the trailer said, I can't do this. And I said, well, they're your bison. <laughs> I'm not keeping the bison here. I just yeah. don't think they should stay overnight at the interpreter center. Even if I lock the gate, yeah. we don't know whether they're going to stay in this enclosure. And so he had to go and call somebody else to come out. Oh that was one of those days where you start at a, at a festival event or a, a commemoration <laughs> event at 7 in the morning, and it's now 9 at night. And you're and super... You're st- Still trying to get these bison in the trailer. And still so full of energy. Not exhausted at all. (laughs) And you're like, how did my life come to this at this moment? (laughs) So that's a story my sister has in her diary. (laughs) Well, and that's a good one, I think. trip to Montana. (laughs) Yeah. Remember that... I wonder if at family reunions, yeah. Jane, do they go, remember that time with the bison? Like, yeah. oh, no, I guess I don't recall that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My sister will recall it very uh, clearly. Do you, So have there been any other animal 
free roaming. <laughs> no, <laughs> those were the two that were free roaming. <laughs> okay. We did have a falconer who came out. Oh. And that was really fun for people because mm-hmm. they could, he couldn't, he was training a bird and then he had an experienced bird, mm-hmm. as I recall. He had two birds. And the experienced bird was obviously one that um, we didn't have any concerns about mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they come back for food. Mm-hmm. And um, and that bird did not go to people or anything. It came right back onto the gloved hand of the handler. But the one that was a little less experienced, the handler got a little bit overconfident, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he thought, I'm going to send him out off mm-hmm. leash, you know, because mm-hmm. they sometimes have a tether. Yeah. And so he said, I'm going to let him go. And I said, are you sure you can get him back? And he said, oh, I'm pretty sure I can get him back. <laughs> yeah, that sounds confident. So, <laughs> so that was one of those nail biters. Mm-hmm. But the bird did come back, but he didn't come back on command immediately. Oh, mm-hmm. And so I kept thinking, oh, this poor falconer, he's lost his bird. His bird's never going <laughs> to oh, come out no. of the sky. It's going to be on its own. And, yeah. And, you know, you got to be careful because when you do release a bird permanently from mm-hmm. being a falconer, you got to make sure that the bird is ready, ready. to hunt on its own. Mm-hmm. And this bird yep. is not ready to hunt on its own. But it yeah. did come back. Thank goodness good. it came back. <laughs> that's good. So one of the notable things, I'm just shifting gears from animals, because that's what I do. I'm excellent at transitions. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, people will notice when they go to the interpretive center is how undeveloped it is. Like when you walk up, you're it's a unassuming building in really an (laughs) unassuming area of land it doesn't seem like there was much thought put into that but in all actuality there was a ton of thought put into the way the landscape looks there Mm -hmm. did you have a hand in that or did did you just like run out of money no (laughs) no me and others here's one of the things we told the architects is that we want that building to disappear on the landscape Mm. and and it pretty much does yeah um Except their colors weren't great. When they came back with their color scheme for the building, it was sort of this kind of the maroon trim and this oh. green trim. And it's sort mm. of, a, and um, fortunately. A little earthy. But yeah, yeah. But the forest supervisor at the time when this happened was a woman. And Dale had retired, Dale Gorman. And Gloria Flora was a landscape architect by training. Oh. And so I took the color palette into Gloria and I said, hmm. I'm not color. I'm not comfortable with this color palette. What do you think? She said that's horrible. <laughs> she, <laughs> she said we got we got to change that immediately. And I said, well, look, Gloria, what I want is the landscape, the vegetation changes color mm-hmm. with the seasons. It's greener in the spring, obviously, and it's duller in the fall. And she said, get me get me so many color palettes. So I brought them into her, and Gloria F- Flora sat down with the color palettes, mm-hmm. and she handpicked the colors for the building. Oh, wow. And those colors, they they kind of pop, mm-hmm. uh, depending what time of year it is, pop with the landscape color mm-hmm. so that they blend. It actually blends with that color of the landscape. So, no, we did not run out of money for the plants. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything there was intentional. So I have to give credit to two other gentlemen that worked for the Forest Service at the time. Both are still living here in Great Falls. One is Wayne... Phillips. Wayne is a botanist. Okay. And he's a native plants expert. And then Ron Yates was a landscape architect for the Forest Service. And so Wayne picked the plants. And so what we did 
before excavation started, people may not know this, we went out and collected seed on site of the actual snowberry and the yucca. And we sent that to a nursery in the Bitterroot who grew native plants Mm. and we paid them to grow our plants and then they were shipped back. And then Ron Yates, with Wayne's help for angle and sun angle and shade from the building, decided where those would happen. So if you recall, for at least a year, we had no plants out there. And that was because we needed to address native weeds. Mm. And so you don't want to be spraying once you've put your native plantings in. So we waited for the weeds to come in and then we treated the weeds and let them die. And then the next year we planted the Mm. native plants. And you know, it's been a pretty successful planting it's a little overgrown right now i i sometimes want to go out there with my nippers and do a little (laughs) trimming um because you know plants grow it's 25 years is it 25 years old yes Mm -hmm. 25 years old so these plants are are getting a little unwieldy and so you know you can cut them back and it doesn't hurt them the the deer nibble back plants all the time and Mm -hmm. they regenerate so i know that um ray tetrault has done a, a yeoman's job of trying to manage the native vegetation out there. And so the beauty of that is that in the spring, we used to have a education program with school district where we actually had children come out and learn about native plants when there were no leaves on them. Mm. That is oh. really tough. Mm. That yeah, is really they tough. They all look How a little identify. Yeah. That's right. And so we taught children when that program was going on, how to identify mm. our native plants with no leaves. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Too. I didn't realize that I knew that, the, you know, it was somewhat intentional of the area, but I didn't realize things were taken, seeds sent somewhere else, yep. grown, so developed. from that From that space. land. Right. So then you know that they're acclimated to that, yeah. that land. That's really cool. That yeah. was good forth, you know, forethought on that. Well, yeah. and the other thing you'll notice, folks, is because um, I've been there, mm-hmm. I can tell you, there's signage that tells yeah. you right. what, they, what, what those things are. So mm-hmm. it isn't just you know, patches of randomness that there is intent and design there, (laughs) obviously. And then the other thing that's out in the landscape is a metal frame that looks like a bicycle rack. Yep. It's (laughs) actually the metal frame for the iron boat. And so if you recall, that's a major part of the story here in Great Falls is that Lewis knew there was a waterfall. Mm-hmm. He thought there was only one. Yeah. He didn't realize there <laughs> no. were five. Well, big surprise. Yeah. But he knew he wouldn't be able to get his boats portaged, except mm-hmm. for little canoes. Mm-hmm. And so the iron boat was his brainstorm. He fabricated, had the metal fabricated before he left um, the east and brought it out in strips. And then here in Great Falls area, and we all believe it was near the Ayrshire Dairy, Mm. they actually constructed the iron frame, and then there were bison in the area, and they actually used the hides of the bison to cover that boat for Mm. it to be floatable. The problem was they just didn't have any pitch in the area. It's all Mm. cottonwood trees, so Mm -hmm. there wasn't any pine trees to get pitch. So they had to create their own pitch, and it was a combination of charcoal and wax and mm. disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> it, it actually got wet and the hides all fell, it off. fell off. Basically, mm. they didn't adhere to each other. And yeah. so that was that's when Lewis went into a big funk. And mm. that's when Clark had to get the men regrouped and go cut additional cottonwood trees down um, towards the Gannon Ranch area out there. Yeah. And uh, cut down big, huge cottonwoods and create new 
dugouts. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So. And so what you're saying is they showed up to the Great Falls in canoes that they had had for a while, abandoned them, walked, <laughs> walked past, you know, to White Bear Island, mm-hmm. made new ones and jumped back in. Kind of, kind of, <laughs> ex- ex- with one exception is that they left the larger boats that could not be portaged. They did have a couple dugouts already, and so they used those dugouts to portage what mm. equipment they had. But then when they didn't have the iron boat, they needed additional dugouts, mm. so they made additional dugouts. Mm. They've made dugouts several times. I mean, they learned from the Nez Perce when they needed dugouts, when they had used horses to get over the, the pass over in the Idaho side, and then they got onto the rivers again, and then they needed uh, vessels again. The Nespers actually taught them how to burn out pine mm-hmm. dugouts. That's a lot quicker than using an ads <laughs> and trying to cut green. Well, cut you wood. know, sometimes you just like them to whittle some wood. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's big wood to whittle. Yeah. Was the so, uh, talking about being out outside of the center there? Was the the amphitheater kind of set up the mm-hmm. outdoor space? Was that part of the original design as well? Yes, it was, mm. and. Um, when I was the director there, we did programs there every Friday and Saturday mm-hmm. night throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. And it was great, except a couple times you'd be eating a few bugs. But, <laughs> I mean, the mosquitoes weren't too bad. We would actually ask the city to spray for mosquitoes. Yeah. And that was very effective mm-hmm. when they would spray for mosquitoes. But when you'd have a hatch of bugs that didn't <laughs> bite, they'd be yeah. all around your head. Yeah. You had a little halo yeah. around your head. You'd be eating them a few times. But, yeah. you know, people would sw- swat Extra them away. Po- yeah. Extra protein. There you go. And there it's good go. uh, stargazing spot as well. It is. Mm-hmm. The astronomy club used to come out there mm-hmm. all the time on special nights, once a month. Mm-hmm. And then the programming in the center was to make things. The children would make things. Or we'd show films inside the theater mm-hmm. specifically about astronomy and stars. And it was great. It was great. And, and I will tell you that there are several members of the Lewis and Clark Honor Guard, one of them being Lee Ebeling, um, that really know about how to navigate mm. by, by the stars because Lewis and Clark use yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Forget about that part, the, yeah. t- the nighttime part of yeah. the journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they had to know where they were mm-hmm. at all times, and, um, and they weren't always on the water. Mm. So when they would get off the water, they had to know what direction they're going mm-hmm. and Find pretty important stuff. Yeah. Was the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation always intended to be a part of this center? Yes. The William Sherman Library, um, Bill Sherman was a huge supporter of the Interpretive Center, and he mm. personally donated $200,000. I keep cow. saying two hundred, but that seemed like that was the hey, that's amount the of money. Hey, that's the increment you start yeah, with. that was <laughs> a nice increment. And so... The William Sherman Library was really on a space off of the stairwell originally when you went down the steps, mm. and the library was there. And the Trail Heritage Foundation, they really didn't have a headquarters. Their executive director was wherever the person lived. Mm. And they really, we had courted them to say, you know, you really should come here. We would welcome you to be here. And so when Shannon says those beautiful office windows, you know, mm-hmm. well, I had one of those beautiful <laughs> office windows for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then I just said, when we convinced the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation to bring their executive director here and their membership staff, they had a couple people, I said to the, the Forest Service staff at mm-hmm. the center, I said, look, guys, we're going to renovate this and we're not going to have windows anymore but we're going to give our windows over to the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage mm-hmm. Foundation. 
they are a national organization and they need to have the best spot in the house. And I said, we should be out on the floor with the visitors anyway. Yep. We shouldn't you got be beautiful windows yeah, there. That's right. And I said, <laughs> we shouldn't be sitting in the back. We shouldn't yeah. be hiding back here. So your office space is when you need to do planning and you'll have no interruptions or any diversions of watching eagles snatch ducks off the ice <laughs> by looking out windows. Yeah. And so it, it was a, there was a little disgruntlement. Yeah. But um, we made that modification and then that space, we changed out the whole library um, and the space for, we actually purchased with them some of those rolling cases too. Mm. We assisted with that. Those are the coolest bookcases I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's the only reason you should go visit, but then <laughs> it's a feature that it's I It's a way to compress a lot of material in a small amount of space. I encourage you to just experience those bookcases. Yeah. yeah. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm well, like, and the Trail Fair Heritage Foundation has original materials, yes. research materials from credible authors and researchers on the Lewis and Clark story. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea was that we hope to attract other researchers to come here to do their own research. Mm -hmm. Now, there is like some type of scholar program that has come to the Trail Heritage Foundation uh, at the Interpretive Center. Does that still happen? You know, they had a scholar in residence program, Gary Moulton, who did all of the journals mm. of the Lewis and mm. Clark expedition. I think he was the first one. Jay Buckley has been there from um, Utah, and um, he he actually wrote the most defining book on Clark. Mm. And so he was there, and he's a professor still. So I know that they've had smaller scale residents come in. But what we used to do was actually have them stay for a month and do research on whatever project they were working on. Maybe it was a, a publication they were doing, an article they were doing, or maybe it was a book they were doing. And then they would do lecture series once a week hmm. at the Interpretive Center, sometimes out in the amphitheater, sometimes inside in the theater area. So I'm not sure that's still going on. That was um, a big venture. But if it is still going on, that would be a question for the Portage Route chapter because they would be sponsoring that. Oh. So 10 years, you give birth to this thing, and then you <laughs> watch it grow up to be a teenager, and then you walk away. What was that like? You know, I walked away from the Interpretive Center knowing the program for the entire next year. Everything was scheduled. Everything was in place. Even if they brought in a temporary person, um, all you had to do was follow the schedule. Everything was laid out. And we were at such a successful level at that time, and we had very credible staff who knew their jobs. I felt comfortable stepping aside. It was time for me because, you know, I got to tell you that 10 years, it was a great job. I loved it. But I am not a repetitive person. So when you're celebrating Black History Month, um, and trying to find another new speaker for Black History Month. Mm -hmm. Each time I thought, you know, we need new blood here mm -hmm. who has new ideas to bring in people. Yeah. I mean, because we, for Black History Month, Shannon, you may not know this, but we brought in extremely well-qualified black poets mm, that came cool. in that had done poetry on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Wow. And some of the po poems were actually in the voice of the dog. Oh, wow. And the, the gentleman that did it, the voice was often from... Um, from the black character on the Lewis and Clark expedition York. from York. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that gentleman was great. And, but you know, I like a new challenge every time. And yeah. when I was approached to consider moving on to a new venture, I said, yeah, I can make another, 
I can make maybe an, I can try it. An, yeah, I can help out in a different way in our yeah. community. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the infamous Meg Whitman always said when she uh, takes a leadership role, she's got 10 good years in her, and then she has to step away because you need a fresh set of eyes. You need a whole new set of energy. I can give you what I've got, which is really just 10 years worth, and then somebody else has to come in. Yeah. And I've always appreciated that kind of thought process because 10 years is a long time when mm-hmm. you devote your soul to developing and growing whatever it is and getting it to where it is and go, okay. Someone else now needs to have that vision. So, which is kind of exciting in our two-part series. Uh, The next uh, episode after Jane is Mm going to be Dwayne Buchai. And Dwayne Mm -hmm. has a lot of energy and is bringing new (laughs) ideas to the Interpretive Center and new exhibits. And they are changing out. Well, I don't want to steal his thunder, but, <laughs> but Dwayne is bringing new things to the Interpretive Center, and I think it's going to be fabulous. Yeah, Dwayne is fun. He's mm-hmm. been on the podcast before, uh, tell, just telling stories mm. uh, that he knows. And then, you know, like you were talking about the Rangers there having that interpretation aspect, the areas they know and the things that they know and mm-hmm. the information they share is just crazy mm-hmm. um we did an entire video for virtual visitation on burning poop oh yeah. my goodness <laughs> you know yep. because that is yep. an important skill to have yeah, bison piles mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Yep. and so when you get the opportunity to just visit about the the most what we'll call the creative mundane portions of life of just starting a fire or the medicine that they used or whatever it is it's just kind of fun because it's not things that you think of today yeah but just normal for them like okay you want <laughs> me to what teach we do. you how to start a fire okay mm-hmm. here we go yeah <laughs> and Dwayne will be sharing more about all of the events surrounding the 25th anniversary celebration which we should say our podcast here are coming out Dwayne's will come out on the actual 25th anniversary as noted on May 5th the actual 25th anniversary celebration will coincide with the Lewis and Clark Festival which is at the end of June and early July this year so Duane will be sharing more about all of the the fun things that they'll be doing I mean the Lewis and Clark Festival is always a great great event and they're just upping the game even more for this 25th anniversary so Jane what other stories do you have to tell me well I will tell you one other story about the grand opening Mm. and so you know usually there's a ribbon cutting Mm -hmm. yeah and so james parker shield and mark mike labriola had this scheme of creating this big long sweet grass braided rope oh Oh, wow and so you don't want to cut that with a pair of scissors no that's a little bit of a challenge so mike labriola said since you're talking about making fire yeah i was mike (laughs) said well how about i make fire from flint and steel and we burn the sweet grass rope in half yeah and all the players are on either ends of the sweet grass yeah braid rope and i said that's a fabulous idea and then about a month later mike labriola calls me he goes I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? You make fire all the time. Yeah. And he goes, I've been practicing every day, several times oh, a day. No. I don't know. I don't know whether I can get this to happen so that we can actually break burn. the braid and oh, burn it. Oh, no. And I said, Mike, you're committed. <laughs> you know you can do it. And I'll tell you that guy, he just worked <sighs> that and worked that and worked that. And James was like 
blowing a little on it <laughs> when Jane, when Mike was putting the fire uh, up to it, and it worked perfectly. It worked uh, perfectly. That's cool. But poor Mike, he had a lot of angst <laughs> He's about like, that. Oh my gosh. That's. I mean, that's a huge endeavor. Uh-huh. Yes. You're like start a fire on command immediately with a huge crowd watching. Mm-hmm. That will and it'll be effectively burn, burn through the yeah. sage. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you don't know whether it's going to be a windy day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turned out to be a perfect day. Yeah. <laughs> Everything works out well. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so will you have a moment, do you know, at the 25th anniversary where you just get to stand and tell stories? And we can go sit in a circle at Well, your if we feet. do that, we should invite Sue Bichelle up because, I mean, mm. Sue and I have stories together that we could. <laughs> she, she'll prompt me, I know, and oh. remind me. Billy Maxwell should be another one that comes mm. because, you know, those are the people from the original group. And um, without them, yeah, the yeah. place wouldn't be what it is. Mm. I mean, the volunteer program alone that mm. was developed, we had 110 volunteers Holy when I was cow. there. And wow. the volunteers at the Interpretive Center are committed. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't act like volunteers. No, they act like, like people that they own a stake in mm-hmm. there and they show up to do the best job they can to give you the experience that you need. It's really impressive. It is. Well, and one of the things you, you all might think about is interviewing a volunteer or two because mm-hmm. they've got stories to tell about people they've met that has left a memorable mark on their mm. lives too. Mm-hmm. And some of those volunteers have been there 20 years. Yeah. We've Which lost quite a few over the course of 25 years. Yeah. You know, you get Bound people that are retired. Yeah. They're in their 60s and 25 years later, mm-hmm. you know, you lose yeah. some of them. But um, there have been some that have been longstanding volunteers. Mm. That's incredible. I When we were talking about the 25th anniversary, to me, it, it has been like the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center has just always been part of Great Falls. So to me, when we were talking about 25 years, I was like, no way. It's way older. It's been around way longer than that. And to me, for I think it's just like so etched in my brain in part being part of Great Falls that it's hard to believe that it's as young as it is still. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's those things like it was established when I was here mm-hmm. in one of the first projects I worked on at Bandit Communications when I worked there for Rhonda, uh, was part of the Lewis and Clark Festival, the Blues and Brews effort that, um, no, that was not it. It was... Um, we had the Mission Mountain Band out at the Lewis there and Clark we go. Interpretive Center twice. And then there was some uh, floating trips that they were oh, auctioning gosh, yes. off. Oh, yes. So I was part of the design team that was working on that. And, you know, it was... It doesn't register at the time that it is still such a young organization Mm because at the time it would have been three years old, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah, it's much younger than the Sam Russell Museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, some people were a little afraid that it would overshadow the Sam Russell Museum or, you know, or the Sam Russell Museum would overshadow the Interpretive Center. All to the contrary. Everything has been a complimentary thing because when you come to Great Falls, there are 10 museums in this community yep. and there are plenty of places to visit, see mm-hmm. a different different era of mm-hmm. our time mm-hmm. of development in Great Falls. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just a lovely thing that people forget. Go to all of them. Right. Yeah. And it's Sunday all part Sampler, of the story. you know, Sunday yeah. Sampler just recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, um, it's all good. 
It's all good. Well, the more, and, the better. Yeah, exactly. And you don't get to be Montana's museum capital for nothing. <laughs> exactly. You know, we build amazing museums. We mm-hmm. put our heart and soul into them and then open our doors for you to come and experience. Mm-hmm. So That's right. You need to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jane, thanks for sharing the stories. Yeah, it was fun. You. It was fun. Thank yeah, you. It was a blast. And um, if you want to know more, stay tuned because we're going to have more mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark stuff <laughs> coming up. Uh, plenty more people that can share more stories about all the fun that's there. But mark your calendars. June 30th, July 1, July 2. Uh, that's when the Interpretive Center's 25th anniversary party is going to happen. Um, there may no, there may not be wild grizzlies or bison, <laughs> but it'll still be fun and safe and exciting mm-hmm. for everyone. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll ask Dwayne next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. So, folks, until we see your bright, smiling, happy, healthy face here in Great Falls, Montana, we hope you are creating amazing memories with your friends and family, wherever you might be. See you soon. We are no damn experts, as the recorded claims from Great Falls, Montana, covering what you need to know about this amazing damn town. Damn, that felt good.